Hello, and welcome to the second episode of What We Know, What We Don't. I'm Peter Roche. My co-host is Benita Conde, our first and previous episode. We were introducing each other by interviewing each other. And as one might expect, or at least as I expected, it went long. So episode two is going to be a continuation of those interviews. We're going to finish up with me, and then we'll get on to Benita and we appreciate you joining us. Before we had to wrap things up last episode, uh, I wanted to say something about how education relates to where I find myself now. In the system that was existed uh, at that time, I went, yeah. uh, you know, I went to public. I have no, no real issue with my own public schooling, and and now as a parent, I, I find that I think about it a lot school yep, and, and and what it is and what it can be or what I think it should be and all the different variations of schooling and learning that there are in the world. But what I was engaged in was something that was pretty, you know, routine, pretty organized, very like by the book, um, no pun intended. But in that instance, it's like if I had a teacher and they're reading something that I've written, very rarely were they actually commenting on what I had written Right, like the story and the, the story, the imagination, the tension behind right. it. Yeah. Oh, did you did you think about maybe hiding this bit about the hero until later? Not nothing like that. Right, like really learning how to tell a story yeah. rather than the nuts and bolts of grammar. Right. And, yeah. It wasn't about that, and I think that uh, it, it definitely I got bogged down in that other aspect of it, and I did not do well in it. I was not. I was somebody who got really good grades most of my life prior to college mm -hmm. and grades were important to me. And I hung out with people who, who also felt grades were important. Mm -hmm. And so probably the easier thing to do is like, okay, just not do as much of that. Try to figure out other classes and things to get into. And oh, yes, this is definitely a show yeah. <laughs> that so, we'll, we'll discuss this further. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's only one instance of public schools trying to squash my creativity. <laughs> but yep. I, so yeah, I mean, I, I think I always was somebody who enjoyed writing, but more than writing, I've always enjoyed storytelling. I like telling stories and I, I love to be able to tell somebody a story in a way that entertains them. And I think that that is something that, you know, that's a feeling. It gives me a feeling to share a story and, and have somebody react to it in, in whatever way the story deems, whether it's laughter or shock or, or uh, everything in between. And so when I came out of college, I actually uh, had come out as an art director. I'd come out as an art, oh. di art director. And, and that's, that yeah, that's what I wanted to be. Oh, I'm going to be an art director. And the first job I got was as an art director. Now, I will tell you that woman who hired me, Deborah, she was the only one I met with, and I met with a ton of people who mm -hmm. said, I think you're a great art director. Every other person I met with who did not hire me said, have you thought about being a writer instead? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't listen to one of them. I was so committed to the idea of what an art director was, could be or was supposed to be. Sure. Like There was some sort of mystique around it that I wanted. I wanted to be able to tell, oh, I'm an art director. So yep, I get that. It would be about four years later when finally I took a job as a writer at Cartoon Network in Atlanta, Georgia, um, and that was also because the guy who ran that that creative department really just identified. He's like, "You're a writer, and you need to." Stop. And you were able to hear it then. I was able to finally hear it. He's like, "You're not yep. this. You, you could you could be an art director, and I'm sure you'll get away with it." I think is kind of what he's saying. He's like, I'm sure you could get away with this for a very long time. If you want to, but if you come down here, you're going to be a writer. And then I went down there and I was, I was surrounded by all these other brilliant writers. It's just so many, I it really just what timing it was. It was right when adult swim kind of became a thing. I don't know if you're familiar wow. with adult. Yeah, of course. Right? Of course. So it, there was just people coming from all different places and all different types of voices. And I mean, a pr I would say for that time, this is like 1999. The diversity of the writers was not great. It was probably thinking back, 
I'm sure it was all white, but it was at least male and female. It was very pretty evenly divided. That's yeah. very progressive for that yeah, time. For that time. And and mm-hmm. truthfully, like this one writer uh, who worked there, she'd been there a while. She kind of took me under her wing and 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 I never looked back. I mean, I never okay. from that moment on, I was like, oh right, why didn't I what what was I thinking? I love to write and I love to be the one who tells the story and creates the story and makes it and not that art direction isn't a part of that, especially in advertising, but yeah. You know, and then the book, I mean, I think that was just that was just something. And is it two that you've written or is it actually three? Oh, I've, ri- I've, I've, I've actually written three, three okay, novels. Right. Yeah. Three novels. Wow. And do you mind for our listeners sharing what the latest is so they can be aware of it and then it's out in the world? I, I do not. Um, my, my third novel is called Future Skinny. And it is a, I, I refer to the genre as addiction fiction. Um, Love it. Yeah. And and honestly, addiction fiction is something that is actually taking taking root enough that I imagine it it won't be long before you're seeing it. If you were mm-hmm. to walk into a Barnes and Noble, here's the addiction fiction, specifically addiction horror. There are all these really amazing writers right now. <clears throat> In fact, a lot of them are are uh, you know trans uh, and LBGTQ. I always I'm so worried I'm going to say that wrong. Did I just, you got it. I got it. Yeah. LGBTQ. Yeah. IA plus. Mm-hmm. And it's, and they are engaged in this really amazing sort of c- cross of like addiction, body control, all of this stuff and how it just meshed together. And they're telling their stories through horror. And it's so much of it is, is just really breathtaking. And, and anyway, I'm kind of getting lost just thinking about some of the stories that I've read recently. Well, but it's fascinating just to understand a little bit about the genre and that it's becoming a, like you said, like could be like an, you know, labeled genre in a bookstore. Um, and just what I'm thinking of in terms of being a part of recovery and speaking about recovery publicly or any of the ways in which you could argue mar- being a recovering alcoholic or addict, et cetera, you sort of end up in a, a bit of a marginalized group in, in a of a sort in terms of how we identify and that it makes sense to me that that element is then attached to other marginalized groups telling stories about their experiences through the fiction lens because it creates a um, acceptance and there's accepted narratives through telling these stories as a part of the you know cultural context that's totally out in the world. totally you're exactly right and i think one of the more you know, I got onto Twitter honestly because of politics. I got like there was a period of time when I got on Twitter. Now I'm on Twitter for that community of writers, and they mm, they I'm I'm just joining in. They formed these communities without me. I had nothing to do with it, and it's been a delicate balance of like trying to insert yourself into it in a way that feels authentic and real, and like I'm interested in you. I'm not look. There's so much transactional expectations from people on a lot of social platforms. Oh, I followed you. You need to follow me back. Or I promoted this thing. Why aren't you promoting? You know, I, I just find the stories, not only the stories they're writing, but their personal stories to be really fascinating. And I think they've been able to connect with people that they never would have connected with, or they would have had difficulty, a a far more difficult time finding these other people like them who are doing, uh, these types of, uh, of stories. And so <clears throat> when I went recently to speak about Future Skinny, and I called it addiction fiction, and, and it was to this group of mostly teenagers, mm-hmm. they didn't just shake their head and be like, sure, addiction fiction. They're like, what is that? You know? And, and I was like, okay, I've got I've to tell you, and I've got to figure out a good way to tell you in a way that makes sense. And I asked a friend of mine who, his name's Mark Matthews, he's, he's an excellent um, writer and he, he mostly does horror and a lot of it is addiction fiction. And I said, what would you say addiction fiction really is? And he was like, it's self versus self. And I was like, totally. Oh, you're right. That's it. Yes. The story isn't about self versus self. There's other things going on. It's if it's a horror story, it's obviously coming to life as something could be monstrous, could be, you know, phantasmic, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But 
really at the end of the day, the thing that's the challenge, the thing that your your protagonist has to overcome is himself or herself or themselves. And yeah. and and that is what it is. And the first book I wrote, which was called My Dead Friend Sarah, was about Oh, that's right. It was about a guy and he was in his first year of recovery. And uh at that time when I when I sat down to write it, I wasn't really sure where it was going. And and then when it was out, I referred to it as addiction fiction. And sometimes I would refer to it as self-help fiction. Sure. And I felt like such a phony when I said that. If I said that out loud to people, because mm -hmm. I, I, I was lucky that I was invited to be on a few radio programs. I was interviewed by a few papers um, about it. And anytime that those words left my mouth, I was like, you don't know what you're talking What are you talking about? Self-help <laughs> fiction, addiction fiction. But in that same time, boom, Mark Matthews reaches out to me. He's like, hey, I read your book. I'm doing something similar. I haven't really decided what to call it yet. But I was also kind of thinking it's like, can you help people by telling fictional stories? In this world of like, here's a memoir about my problem. Right, here's so many. a step-by-step -step book to do which mm -hmm. I was handed those routinely mm -hmm. as people were trying to help me read this book. Yep. You need to get, yep, your, yep. get your stuff together. Ultimately, somebody handed me a book that, that was a piece of fiction and the story resonated with me in a way that made me evaluate what I was going through, what I was doing to myself in a way that reading a biography never could or an autobiography, especially. Yeah. Cause so, it's so easy to compare when you read those actually. Right. So it takes that, that lens of identity of comparing rather than identifying if it's in a fictional story, you can much more easily identify, I think. Uh, absolutely. And I think <laughs> especially for people who, who, who are going through what we went through, you've got all of these walls up. You, you're fighting your last fight. Mm -hmm. I'm going to stay this. I can beat this. Don't tell me what to do. I don't need any steps. I don't want to hear any of your advice. I've got it under control as you, oh my God, and you don't, no. right? And I don't, mm -hmm. honestly, what I told the class the other day is I don't believe the person who handed me this book handed it to me to help me. I don't actually think they thought if I give Peter this book, it will unlock something in him and he will get help. Mm -hmm. I think they just thought it was a good book. And I think I was just lucky enough to have that right book fall, fall into my hands. So my book, Future Skinny, this is my third book, and it is about a, a devoutly anorexic man um, who, can, who finds out uh, that he can see the future by binge eating. And, and that's, you know, that's all I'll say really right now. We could talk about it again some other time. <laughs> yes, we'll definitely talk yeah. about it some other time, but that's, that's a wonderful nugget to share with the listeners. Thank you. Okay, those are my questions, Peter. You are off the hook, my friend. All right. I'm going to get into you. <laughs> All right. All right. Honestly, I don't think you've ever told me this. I don't believe we've ever talked about this. I, I, what I know of you and what I know, what I think I know about your uh, desires, obviously as a dancer. Mm -hmm. And if I'm not mistaken, I think, did you, did you grow up in Connecticut? I didn't. I grew up in Minnesota. Minnesota. Okay. Yep. So, I have to ask you, how did you end up in advertising? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. It's like crazy winding road. <laughs> Classic like New York, have nine lives, be who you want, you know, kind of story. Um, so I was born and raised in Minnesota. At eight years old, I knew I wanted to be a professional ballet dancer. So it's interesting, some of these parallels in our stories that like, I don't think we knew about each other. Um, I started training with um, an incredible teacher who had uh, immigrated, and this was in the 80s, from the Ukraine, which was at that time the USSR. So it was dramatic and like basically was escaping the country. Um, and so my heart is very much with Ukraine right now. And um, so she's trained in the classical tradition. I saw her and I'd taken dance since I was three at like tap belly and jazz studios. And the minute I laid eyes on this woman, I was like that, that is what I want to do. And so I trained with her in various different studios in Minneapolis um, until I was 17 and gone, had gone to off to summer programs in the summer where you're away for like six or eight weeks and you dance very intensively with like another company or school or another program. 
And one of those programs um, when I was 17 was the Joffrey Ballet School in New York City. And I got a scholarship and was like terrified of New York City. So it's interesting, like in hearing the responses to my questions, these parallels, right? I just had never considered it. I was considering Pacific Northwest Ballet in Seattle. Oh, that's so weird. Um, I was considering um, San Francisco Ballet, uh, Houston Ballet, these wonderful big city programs, but the like weren't New York City. Um, I don't know. I was just afraid of it. And, but I got this scholarship and I really liked the company. I had seen Joffrey perform multiple times and I liked like the mix of dancers and their shapes and sizes and the repertoire. And I was like, I, it's, it was a little not so, so classical, um, but did also classical works. And I went and I got off the plane and my mom was with me, drove me. We went the Newark route, I think. So I drove into the city that way and was just like, what is this wonderful place? Like from minute one, I was like, oh, I'm, this is, I'm, I mean, I just, I didn't have the words, but I was like, I'm coming back. So I finished the summer program and I went to my guidance counselors at school in my senior year. And I said, how do I graduate early? I didn't tell my parents. So back to the back to the lying part. I was like, let me, how do I work this out before I tell them? And they were like, oh, you really apparently already enjoy more of the required classes that we require for you to graduate. So you're really ahead of the curve. So you just need to like take these things for the next semester and you can be done in December. Awesome. And then we went on college tours um, and my parents wanted me to go to college very much. And I understand that, you know, there came from like pretty traditional experiences in life. And so I would go to schools. I would go audition for the dance department at the schools because my backup was communications. This is so weird. I've never thought about this till now. My backup was communications and I wanted to be in like broadcast journalism. I have not put that together (laughs) with this until just now. So I went to these schools, a few, um, to do the whole like, you know, overnight and whatever. But I would audition for the dance department. And then the director of the dance department at these colleges all said, you have to let her go to New York. Oh. I'd like tell them what I was considering. And then they'd pull my parents over and be like, you, sh- you should really let her go to New York. So I had all these adults like help my parents understand right. Right. what I needed to do. So I went to New York. Um, I moved there um, just after my 18th birthday and my mom moved me into like a residence hall and then left like a week later. And this was um, 93. So the first um, Twin Towers attack happened while she was there. Oh, wow. <laughs> she, we could see it out my window Goodness. and she was just like, I don't want to leave you here. And I was like, oh, go, it'll be fine. That's my Minnesotan coming out. Um, and it was. Um, and I lived there for 25 years. And I danced professionally until I was 22 with like regional companies and a Broadway show tour. And then I really wanted to get into the Joffrey company. And I knew to do that, I was going to have to finally get thin, like get really skinny. So it's interesting. Um, I've, I can't wait to read your book when it comes. Um, and I did that. I like just went whole hog. I was a personal trainer a little bit at the time as well, because I was working out at gyms to help a back injury. And they had asked me to be a trainer. They saw that I was a dancer and I understood form and how the body moves. So I think at that point I'd also become a certified personal trainer. And so I knew all the ways I had done education on diet. At that point I had done education on caloric burn, you know, body mass versus how many calories I was burning. And so I would, I was basically exercise bulimic for that period of time and like really calorie risk restricting. And I lost a ton of weight. I was 103 pounds and I could dance better than I had ever danced before. Cause when you're more thin, it just works for that particular like skating, like gymnastics. I'm not promoting it by any means, but the way in which your body moves in those extreme athletic endeavors it, it, it is easier. It's just easier when there's less weight on your body. So I was becoming successful at that. And um, they saw that and they asked me to finally apprentice with the main company for the Nutcracker, which is the way they auditioned dancers from the school for the main company. And it was like my goal, my dream, my whole life. And it was happening. And I was sitting on the studio floor and I couldn't remember choreography things were starting to fall apart. I was craving really wacky foods and I couldn't like not eat them. Like so then I was like starting to binge in weird ways. I was not somebody who was just, I couldn't purge like that. Just, I couldn't get my body to do that. So 
um, I just was, it was all feeling out of control. And I was sitting on the studio floor one day and this very loud voice came into my being, uh, you know, whether it was myself or whether it was, you know, higher consciousness, whatever you want to call that moment. And it said, get up and leave now. And it said it again. Like, I was like, what? And then it said it again. And I was like, oh, right. Like, I have to leave now or I'm going to die. Like, either going to like have a psychotic break or like, I knew it was like either going to be like a psychological mess or a physical mess, but I was harming myself. That's insane. I I can't believe that. I mean, you know, you hear, I obviously hear people talk about hearing a voice and, and I believe in that. I don't know that I've ever actually heard one. And uh, I mean, there you were, you're so far removed from all of the stuff that you're going to go through. But even then it just kind of feels like you've, you've got a connection with your higher mm-hmm. power talking to you right then. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That, that voice has been there a few times in my life. Getting sober was one of them. Um, and another time. Um, and so I was already involved in the fitness industry. So to answer your question, I was already involved in the fitness industry. I worked in that industry for, I don't know, three or four years. And it, I, I was like a, one of the youngest general managers. Cause I was like 21, 22 at this time. I was one of the youngest general managers at the health club chain in New York city. I was a pro trainer. And then I got into sales so that I could go to school at night because mm-hmm. my parents then were like, well, you're not dancing now. Maybe you could go back to right, college. Right. So I went to NYU at night to their school of continuing and professional studies. I think it's called something else now, um, which is an amazing program. I did that for four years, kind of working in sales and personal training because I could kind of do that in terms of time and energy. It was still a lot because I was working full time. And then I, um, a friend, a dear friend asked me, I think I worked in publishing. I like got really bored with fitness. Mm-hmm. Fitness was just like, it's very formulaic. You're doing the same thing over and over again. I didn't realize how much I was missing creativity. Right. I was missing making like original creative works with a group of people. That makes like sense. that I just had like forgotten that that's what I loved because I had to really leave it. I think to do some healing. Yeah. And so then a friend asked me, um, I worked in publishing for a bit and that was just, I think a little aside. Mm-hmm. And then um, like as an assistant to a salesperson in publishing. And then from there, a friend asked me if I would be like a director of operations for their, they had like a dot-com, like stock photography, kind of their photographer business. And so I could be like this director of operations of the small creative business. And then that folded because there's the bust in the right. late nineties, the dot-com bust. And I met a recruiter. I mean, it's such a New York story. It's like we were showing the space that we had been renting to the like, you know, building was going to rent it to somebody else. And they came in and like, they were like, well, what are you going to do next? And I was like, I don't know. I'm looking for, we know a great recruiter. You should meet her. She works like with creative businesses and oh, okay. So you meet with this recruiter. It's this wild night. She's a big drinker. So we drink a ton. We're eating oysters. That's all. And, you know, loving each other. She's like, I have a creative director you should meet. So I met this creative director who worked more on the design side of things, who's working for a dot-com startup, who, another one, but that was like further along in their trajectory. So they're pretty solid. And um, he needed a very holistic, it was a e-com, like handmade, handcrafted goods from around the world. Um, Curator type folks from museums and things were like sourcing these products. And it was, so it was a very visual brand and he was doing the whole brand identity, like everything, the catalogs, the advertising, the websites, all of the photography. So I became a creative producer for him. And he basically taught me advertising agency, project management and production on the ground across all spectrums in this really tiny environment. We built um, a digital photo studio in house. Mm -hmm. So I was working daily with a photographer. So I was learning so much. And he was like, I've worked in agencies. I think you should work in an agency. (laughs) And we had a wonderful strategist who he knew from some other agencies he had worked at, who was at an agency that was very well known and very well respected and highly creative. And he was like, let's talk to her and see if she could get you an interview. Mm-hmm. And she did. And I ended up and 9-11 happened. And so they really contracted because they were a downtown agency. Sure. And when things kind of like settled, you know, like sort of a year after that, they hired me 
uh, as a project manager. And that's how I got into advertising. You know, it's crazy because within, <laughs> within your story, even though pieces of it are probably very familiar, I think people can relate to introductions that happen that, oh, really? That's a, I can do that thing. Okay, great. But there's still so many little pieces. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, like never once have I thought, oh, there's this thing, it happens. This is just indicative of that. It's, it's all of these things. They come together and they land you somewhere. The place that it landed you in advertising feels so huge because then that is, this is what I do. This is who I am. Mm -hmm. it's, it's what's paying me so that I can be an adult, all that stuff that sometimes I think we lose the minutia of everything that got us there. You know, Absolutely. You, you start to form ideas of, well, the reason that I am here is because I did this and then I did that and then this happened. Yeah. And those are tucked in there. But along the way, there are so many other things that ultimately pop you off that could have popped you off an entirely mm -hmm. different direction. That's so, oh, that is awesome to hear. Like I, it again, just, it again just makes me think of like what what it would have been like had we been closer as as users, you know, and as people who were out of our minds. Or or even if, you know, I just often think like I I had I had the opportunity to go to to the University of Southern California and I bounced on that. You're talking about the possibility of being in Seattle. Like maybe I would have gone to Seattle, you know. Like right. it's there's huge world, and that's not anything new to say the world's huge, but it's oh so so small. Um, and honestly, now just hearing again, and I knew this. Obviously, I knew a big chunk of what you went through as a dancer and the weight and the way that you managed that. And it now just has me. I'm like, I should have reached out to Benita while I was writing this book. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I should have. And and many of us have yeah. had eating stuff. Food's yeah. a tricky substance. Well, that's cool. So then my next question mm -hmm. <laughs> on the heels of that, and it's not it does it's not it's a follow-up. It's a follow-up to that, is when you landed in advertising mm -hmm. after the end of that, um, mm -hmm. wherever you were at, were you happy about it? Mm -hmm. You were massively. This light bulb went off. Like I'm working in this organization of people. I'm bringing my now, I know that, I mean, I've always loved to manage people. My best, my best friend's father and my best friend has like from childhood has been my dear childhood friend since we were three. Yeah. So we've had a 44 year friendship. And he said to me, I think it was when I was leaving for New York or something. And we were playing some old cassette tapes back of us, like singing the ABCs or whatever. And I am telling everybody what to do. Was it then? No, I came back home and told people I was a project manager in advertising. He said, oh, that's a perfect job for you. You love to tell people what to do. <laughs> right. So that's been in me from the beginning. There's definitely been a like sort of bossy side and um, which just cracks me up today. So there was that. There was like this component of I get to help be and the way I learned project management at this one agency and then at the agency that we were at together that had very similar approaches to that right. was this very central. You were like the hub and the different spokes came in and you kind of made sure everybody was talking to each other. And it was I love that sense. It was choreography to me. Yeah, I see mm. very visually so I can see people doing things together in like a physical energetic pattern. That's crazy. Yeah. So that's how I applied like my dance experience to project management in a creative advertising space where there's all these moving pieces and all these moving people. And then, so the light bulb went off. Oh, I'm doing like, a, to your point, like adult work where I can make good money and it has this creative, choreographic, fluid component to it that is very fulfilling for me. So yeah, for years, it was just like, this is where I should be. That's, uh, wow. That's amazing. I mean, first off, I'm glad that you were happy when you landed there. I think that's, even, even if it's not always for the right reasons, it, it, it's good to be happy. Yeah, it was the first time since I was a yeah. dancer that I was like, oh, this is the next. This is the thing. Thing that makes that sense. choreography aspect of it. I honestly had never really thought of it that way. Well, you, 
and it, it is, it's so true. There's so many different pieces, you know, I think, especially when, when we got into it is when it really started to, to do that. There was, it wasn't just, yeah. here's a couple of dudes in a room and they just come out and say, I mean, there's just so many more pieces to it, especially working at BBH and, and things of that nature. But Yeah. It, and it, from really, I started in, I don't know what you, year you got into the industry, but I started in 2002, I guess it was. Yeah. And that was just when digital was digital advertising was really becoming a thing. And so I got to see the tail end of more of like the traditional yeah. pace. Yeah. <laughs> and then within my first year or two, it was like, that was all being obliterated and the paste and like all of the multiple elements of like what a campaign looks like completely changed. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it was the, yeah, I think because truthfully, I actually started in 1995. And so okay. I, my, my first gig, my first paying gig uh, was at an agency where they weren't even using computers at all. Um, and they had brought sure. me, they had brought me in wow. to be a part of their computer lab, which was funny cause I didn't really know anything about computers either, but and so I, I actually like the acceleration, just like the rest of the world, the acceleration yep. of things that happened and the new pieces that came in because of technology and because of digital and what you could do not only to create with digital, but also push out that stuff with digital. So many more moving components. I wonder then, honestly, if, if they're even, you know, because truthfully in my first few jobs, I don't remember there even being somebody technically referred to as a project manager. No, and, it was a fairly new role yeah. in the industry. It, it had been much more prevalent in the UK yes, and in London. And then it came over to agencies who had a connection and a more sort of like, I would say like British and European approach to strategy. Right. And those folks loved having project managers. Well, I mean, I think the only thing about it and listening to you talk about it is now I'm like, wow, it's so, it's, it's actually very beautiful. <laughs> I'm like, eh, I don't know. I mean, there's, some, there's somebody, somebody, component. somebody, somebody's listening to this right now, and they're about to make a gigantic life change and switch over to project management because you've painted it so well. I do love it as a discipline. I'm a big champion for it. I it is. I do I work think, with people you know what? in that space still. That part that I was saying earlier about you seeming very put together when we first met and kind of being above it all, I think that actually speaks to how much you did love it and and the passion that you probably brought to it immediately. And, and the reason that I think that was refreshing to me at that time was because honestly, there's so much cynicism. And even though I myself was very cynical at the time, I didn't like it. You know, I mean, it was a part of what I put out into the world, but I didn't, I didn't actually per care for it when it came back to me. Interesting. I was a very, I, I think I honestly, if I was thinking back on it, it was probably a very double standard of like, yes, I'm going to be a cranky cynic, realist, whatever, but don't you dare be. Yeah, and, you know. it was definitely a role that you played and protected that role. Like you got to play that role. Yeah. I would say that. Right. Mm -hmm. And then having you there and you're bringing like an authentic energy and passion to, to that position, I think in the midst of everybody who was there, because there, were, there, there was more than a handful of miserable people there. Mm -hmm. You know, miserable might not even be the right word, but th there was a lot of Darkness isn't the right word either, but there was definitely stuff. I'm just going to yeah. say there was stuff. And so I feel like that is probably part of the reason that when, I, then when, then when we interacted and I met you, it did feel fresh and different for what I had known. And, yeah. you, and you also had just started, which of course, usually that comes with an energy too. Just being new to something has a, as an energy. Whereas then by then I had done what, what, seven years and and maybe had been a bit, you know, beaten down. Yeah. When we met, it was my third year and being in, in BBH and the organization we were at together was like, I just was on fire at that moment. Yeah. So it, the energy felt amazing. And I really, and I am an ultimate uh, optimist, um, which I, <laughs> which can, you know, be, have its challenges as well and an idealist. And so I really brought all of that energy in at that moment. That's good. It's good to be the things that you, that that you just described about yourself, and they're they're all that's all true. I've tried to find a place to be where I what I would often call myself is an the most cynical optimist you'll ever meet. Yeah, which I love that description of yeah. you. Mm -hmm. 
All right. I'm going to go into something just a little bit more crazy. Okay. If you don't mind. I don't know how crazy it is. But <laughs> I, I find it to be very interesting, these two questions, because I think it actually says a lot about a person, whether they realize what they're revealing about themselves or not okay. in the question. Okay. I spend a lot of time thinking about if I could have brain surgery, okay, and uh -huh. they could go in and address one thing about me, uh -huh. change it, uh -huh. all right, R either remove it or uh -huh. alter it, what would that thing be? If you, if you knew that you could go in tomorrow and very safely have some component of your, of your being oh my removed. Only one thing? <laughs> just one. Just one thing. Mm. If it helps, I'll give you an example, but otherwise. No, I've got so many examples. Uh, <laughs> well, like three have come to mind. Um, it's so tricky because I, okay, my, well, can it be like a thing that I would then want the ability to do that I don't feel like I have the natural ability to do? Or is it just no, taking something away? I, I think it's legitimately like we're going to fry this tiny piece of your brain and you won't do this anymore. <laughs> Okay. It's so it's a double-edged sword, but it would be like if you could take out the intensity of my perfectionism, that would be the thing. Yeah. And how in doing that, because here's the second part of the question. Okay. In doing that, what do you think would happen thereafter that would be so much better? That my that parts of my brain, which I really can identify as like much more my brain now than myself mm -hmm. um, and conditioning and, you know, learned experiences versus like the truth of myself. Yeah. Because the truth of myself I've really come to find is quite compassionate and loving and gentle and solid and grounded. And so I imagine then I would have less need for control or less experiences of anxiety or being hard on myself and others. Like that's the piece that I really relate to the perfectionism piece. Right. You've, you have definitely spent time identifying that as, as something that causes all of those things for you. Yep. Yeah. No, that's good. That's, in different parts of myself, I, actually, I've done a lot of like self-identification work <laughs> through various different forms of therapy. There's this great practice called in, intra-family systems, and it's like your family of, of selves, like oh. the different parts of yourself. And the perfectionist part of myself lives in two different parts of me that <laughs> I can identify. If that doesn't sound completely crazy to people who don't know what that is. <laughs> it, I mean, it does. It sounds really super interesting. We'll have to do, we'll have to see if we can't talk about that. Ooh, yeah. yes, we could totally talk about that. I could, I know a couple of people who might be willing to come on and talk about it professionally. I'm certainly just, you know, a, someone who has experienced it as a therapist's client. Oh, I want to do it right now. <laughs> I mean, no, I don't want to talk about it. I just want to be in it. I want to go get in it. I, I honestly hadn't even thought about it. It was like, I, I'm thinking back to rehab real quickly based off of what you just said. It wasn't what you described, but I totally forgot this exercise that we were doing in the rehab until right now. Some sort of, what was it called? I don't know. It was like some sort of bizarre role-playing uh -huh. thing. And I hadn't, I, honestly, I don't think I thought about it since the day I left the rehab, it never popped into my head that I was even doing that, which kind of, uh, I'm starting to wonder like what else was going on at that rehab that I don't remember. I'm sure neither. We probably don't both remember everything from rehab. Crazy. Well, yeah. I, you know, the answer that you gave me, I shouldn't be surprised, um, is, is actually just so perfect and poignant and, and right on. Like I, I would love to, at some point try to like, tell you how having that piece of your brain removed would actually F up your life instead of oh, well, that's why That's why it was so hard to say it because I yeah. do know it has also been an incredible catalyst sure. for like all the things in my life, quite honestly. So there was a part of me that was like, but then it's very funny, me that, funny that there was a part of me that wouldn't want to give it up. You know, it's, it's, it's tricky, that stuff. Totally. All right. I'll go back to something. Oh, uh, just to, help our listeners get a little bit better sense of, of you and where you're at now. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure you told me why you're in Richmond. 
Oh, right. But I actually don't remember why did you pick Richmond? What, what was in Richmond? Yeah, great question. We have family here, quite honestly. And oh, okay. my husband also went to VCU. Okay. So he lived here during his college years and has established friends who still live here. And then I also had connection to the advertising industry here in um, multiple ways. There's multiple really, you know, nationally known and solid agencies here, as well as VCU Brand Center, which is one of the like top master's degree portfolio programs um, for people studying advertising and marketing communications brands. So I had all of those connections. So I actually had clients in place before we moved here. And my husband was already able to prepare transitioning his business. He's a personal trainer and a fitness consultant. Mm-hmm. And so he just had a sense already of people he could plug into to sort of reestablish his business here. And then we have family here, which was right. obviously a big draw. My brother-in-law has lived here since around college time um, with he and my husband and he stayed. And then my mother-in-law moved here like six months before we moved here. Okay. So lots, lots of, it was like, it just made sense. And my husband had said we had visited for weeks at a time, kind of leading up to that year. Uh And we would hang out for a week and like stay at my brother-in-law's and my son would stay at my mother-in-law's where she was living in Northern Virginia at the time. We'd have like a week to ourselves to just explore Richmond. And one of those trips, he said, you know, maybe the only other place I'd live on the East coast would be Richmond. And I I like filed that away (laughs) for when it then felt like so much more of a possibility once I left full-time roles in the industry. So you had, he planted that in that moment, you put that, you filed it away. Yeah, because for both of us, there was no other place. Like New York City was really it until but that but Richmond was there in the back of your mind. It wasn't it wasn't that one day you were just like, we're leaving and where are we going? It's Richmond. You kind of because of the ties there and everything else you had been there. Okay. Yep. See, I think I, I guess I did know that. And certainly I, uh, I knew about the, the connections that you had with the agencies there and also the school. Um, you must have visited the school there quite a few times, I imagine. As a recruiter. Yeah. So I went to a recruiter session often and I had a relationship with the um, uh, director of student affairs. And, you know, when I knew I was thinking about moving here, she and I started to talk. And then when I, I actually, when we came to look at housing options, I went and did a workshop. Cool. And then it, it grew from there. That's cool. Yep. I only ever talked at that school once and I don't remember when it was. I wonder, I wonder if that was sober, Peter, or not. I don't know. All right. Last <laughs> question, Benita. Yes. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. <clears throat> All right. This is one last question. And again, I think it's, I think it says a lot about a person. All right. In my uh-huh. own opinion, you're on an island. Okay. Uh-huh. Most people think that this question, people ask this question all the time and they're like, what would you bring to eat? You can only eat one food. It's actually one uh-huh. of both, one of my son's favorite questions. And that's a good one. <laughs> but here's where it actually reveals more. You're okay. Gonna, you're going to be on this island and it's going to be a minimum of 10 years and you're by yourself. Uh-huh. And honestly, you don't have to worry about food or anything else. You can only bring one song one song to listen to the entire time you're on the island. It doesn't mean you have to listen to it all the time, but this is the one thing that you can bring that isn't just waves and trees and animals and whatever. What song do you bring? Oh my gosh, that is a really hard question. And maybe the other part of my brain that I would have fixed, which was one of the options I was thinking about, was my inability to retain information about music (laughs) and like wanting to be able to like write songs like to have that ability like if we could change my brain I would love that oh my gosh that's really hard um it's unbelievably hard question it's possibly a question that I need to give you time to think about perhaps you need to walk away and think about it and I like almost because I so my mind works really visually with people but for some reason it goes totally blank with music and like oh, lyrics and titles. Sometimes it can be the same with um, movie titles. Like my husband will be like, have you ever seen this? And I'll be like, no, I don't think so. And then we'll get like five minutes in and I'll be like, oh yeah, I've seen it. Right. But I like don't have that recall. I am. I'm going to have to get back to you on that one. Think, think on it because I think it actually is a pretty, it's, it's on the surface. It sounds like a, just like a fun question. Oh, what's all, 
but I think you have to give it some thought. And it's like, what song, I mean, the, where my mind goes with that is what, me- see, because there's so much messaging in songs, in like guided meditations, in whatever words, really, we're right. taking in, right? In whatever format. But especially if it's like the song that you have with you for that period of time that you're going to hear over and over again, based on all the work I've done in the last five years about like rewriting sort of the internal dialogue and like the inner narratives that we tell ourselves and beliefs. Yeah. That's a, no, that's a very powerful question. I, I, I posed the question a few weeks ago on Facebook and I gave it some guardrails cause I knew that it was going to be too, it was too big. <laughs> um, so I, I limited it to eighties I said, you can only pick one song from okay. the eighties. Like an to, era. To, to, okay. Yes. Cause I knew that mm-hmm. that would, and honestly, like the answers, I was, this is amazing because people were answering, but then, and I was getting the reasons a little bit, tying it to who they are. Cause these are people that, you know, uh, you know, that, uh, that I've known. And then you're like, oh mm-hmm. my goodness. Right. Why that totally makes sense that you would say that. But then some people felt compelled to say why they picked that song and then mm-hmm. learning that I was like, wow, I had not thought about that. Actually, that's a really good reason to want that song. If you knew you were, it was the only thing you were going to hear for the rest of your life. Yeah. That makes sense. So think about it. We'll get back to that one. Okay. I have Yay. a bunch of other things that I want to ask you, but I think, I think it would actually be efficient to sort of read the mantra for what we think the show is about and can do. So I'm going to do that real quick. We feel polarization is a problem, but it's not a fun problem. And we also think that one radio show can't fix the growing divides that are happening here and, and really globally, uh, even a fun radio show. But we're going to try. We only know what we know, and we only learn when we hear something new, and we only grow when we take a chance on that new information. So Benita and I, we put that together. We feel that is important, the listening aspect of it. Listening to not just viewpoints, but knowledge. You could call it facts. It doesn't have to be a fact. Any and all information for it to have any kind of real effect on you has to be heard. And hopefully what we, we do with this show is put it together in a way that it doesn't just present new information, but gets you to hear it in a different way, puts you in a mood, I think I would say, to open up your mind to some things that maybe you wouldn't have heard otherwise, or if you had heard because they came from somebody, a personal connection, that already puts up the walls a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. We might say something that your mother has been telling you for years, but you didn't want to hear it because it was coming from your mother. Either we say that or we're interviewing somebody, they say the exact same thing. You don't ever have to tell your mother that she was right, but you're hearing it in a way that Mm -hmm. is actually resonating with you. And so hopefully with this show, what we're doing is just kind of creating an energy, I think, around information that feels comfortable and good and safe. And Uh if we do that, if we even do two out of those three, then, then I would feel pretty good. But if you stay with us long enough, you know, we'll get there. I think we'll get there. I think so too. Yeah. Do you want to spitball on that at all? Yeah. Just that it's, you know, me, myself coming into this and the way you and I have been talking about it, sort of a role I have found I have played or just something that comes very naturally to me is, you know, being this bridge, um, being able to see multiple perspectives, um, you know, less judgment up front. though I think we all have a ton of bias and things or that we do, we can initially judge something, but then pausing and looking that again, at that again, being open So being able to bring in different perspectives, have this space for them to be shared, it may create aha moments for people along the way. And like you said, like that would be an incredible outcome. Um, Changes the trajectory of the way somebody's moving forward with something that would be amazing. And really for me, cultivating compassion and compassion's really tricky and I learned from a dear friend of mine, you know, that there's like sort of a timeline associated with things like compassion, 
Um, and like, or there's like, you get to a point of understanding and that there can be like harm and hurt, but then that needs to be seen and, and maybe some action taken and something changed potentially, mm-hmm. potentially, not always for then. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's all within the human themselves, you know, it might not necessarily need to happen outwardly in some like more materialistic or circumstantial way, mm-hmm. but then that kind of process that leads to more usually acceptance, forgiveness, compassion, et cetera. And that's not always available to us with what's happening within our systems and structures in the world. So that's just like a theme and element that I find in having these types of really open and transparent conversations, bringing in different perspectives when we have guests, that it just cultivates a space of more compassionate, um, you know, insightful, thoughtful dialogue rather than the real polarized experience that we seem to, you know, get from a more, you know, social media, sure, somewhat traditional media uh, part of our world. Compassion. That's a big part of it. I mean, that's really compassion, empathy, understanding. And that knowledge component of it is so key to that because we, we hear something, somebody says something, we see something, we have an immediate reaction to it. But the, the reality is, is all too often we don't know the backstory. We don't know the backstory. That's the thing, right? Then we think we know, and we think we know something. And that's why I love the juxtaposition between what we know and what we don't, because we so often don't know the whole story of anything. You know, and we so want to as humans so that that makes us feel safe and secure in what we do know. But just leaving that door open for what we don't is what's so important to me personally in this um, structure of the show and the purpose of the show. Exactly. And I think that that's hopefully what happened and hopefully how it came across with the conversations and interviews that we just did with each other, because we had an understanding of who each other was and is right now. But there were definitely layers just now that I learned about you that have informed it. And and in this case, have strengthened some things that I already felt about you. And, And I think that that is important to remember too that there's going to be times that we present some stuff and you're going to hear it and it's actually just going to possibly affirm some things and that there's nothing wrong with that either you know yep it's not we're not we're not doing this show to tell you that you were wrong about anything no per se no not at all and we're going to get things wrong and we're going to make mistakes and we're learning i mean that's the biggest piece for me is coming to this um wanting to learn more learning about sort of the messiness of the human experience as well as its infinite potential. Great. Because that's what I want to do too. And I couldn't have said it that lovely. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I'm here for. (laughs) So that was a little bit about Benita and a little bit about me. In future episodes of What We Know, What We Don't, we'll be bringing in experts and friends who have opinions and theories and knowledge that we don't. To some extent, that should lead to maybe slightly more exciting shows if these last two didn't do it for you. Benita, I want to say thank you. And I want to thank our first listeners. And I hope you'll bear with us as we continue to figure out where this podcast lives in your day to day. 